Listener Production. Rebel Wilson grew up in Sydney, where her parents were professional dog handlers. She went to the local schools, studied law at the University of New South Wales, and was a self-professed theatre nerd. Today? Well, today she is a legit Hollywood star, perhaps best known for her role as Fat Amy in the Pitch Perfect film trilogy, which has amassed over $540 million at the worldwide box office. This is some serious horse shit. (sighs) What's that smell? Stinks everywhere. I don't want to be like the old Bellas. Just this week, Rebel announced that she will be donating $1 million to Australian Theatre for Young People, which is where she got her start in the industry. They will be building a new home for themselves, including a theatre that will be named in her honour. I'm Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next is The Weekend List with Tate McGregor, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with the fascinating Rebel Wilson. Let's start at the beginning, Rebel. Tell me about you as a teenager. Did you kind of have a flair for the dramatic from a young age? Oh, well, okay. I have what what's called a snaggle tooth. Um, <laughs> I was born, <laughs> I was born a bit slightly deformed. Um, and so, I, yeah, when I was a teenager, I had like this weird snaggle tooth, tooth and then also one tooth that came out through the roof of my mouth so it wasn't even anywhere near where the teeth were supposed to go. Oh, man. It was very embarrassing. And so I had to have a chain that connected the tooth. My mum thought it was still a good idea to save the tooth. And a chain throughout my teenage years slowly dragged the one tooth from up in the roof of my mouth all the way down. <laughs> so, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't popular with the boys oh. put it that way. <laughs> Having braces and that and that chain <laughs> my mouth. I went to an all-girls um, high school in Parramatta called Tara and, I, I mean, I, I really loved it there. I, I loved it so much that I then decided to live at school. Oh, you were a boarder? Yeah, but only, only as a senior, so only for years 11 and 12. And part of that reason, I guess, is because I was doing the plays and musicals with the Next Door Boys School, the King's School. So we'd be performing till like 11 p.m. at night, so it was just so much more convenient to live at school when you were doing the productions and it was really fun but at first as a teenager like oh my god like in year seven I was like the most dorkiest I had no friends I was in the cool group for like a week and then they said oh we're gonna go smoke behind the toilets and I was like what smoking no that's bad and then they kicked me out of the group and then by that point all the other groups had formed so I literally had no friends for like over a year um, it was like the dorkiest one and, and it was hard. It was hard to come back from uh, once all the cliques had formed. What do you reckon the cool kids at school are doing these days? Because the teenagers are so clean now and focused on, you know, the stuff they put into their bodies. They're probably having green smoothies behind the toilets. <laughs> are they? Yeah. Well, I'm glad nobody's smoking because smoking is one of my like, that's a deal breaker for me. Like it's like, it's, it, I, I hate it. Um, so I'm glad to hear that they are cleaner and taking care of themselves. And so you mentioned that you were involved in the school productions and, I mean, it's a pretty big call to literally move into your school as a boarder because you're so committed to the theatre you're doing. Oh, yeah, I loved it. I mean, obviously it was a chance to socialise 
with guys and being at an all-girls school. But also we had a Zimbabwean mentor, the theatre director at King's called John Haig, and he was just so inspiring to me. He was a professional theatre director in Zimbabwe and then because of a lot of the turbulence over there moved to Australia and he treated us like professionals and the way we put on those productions. There was actually an ABC documentary made. I I'd just finished the year before, so uh, I wasn't in it. They literally put on, you know, very strong um, productions and treated us pretty much like professionals. And, I, and that was my first taste of, of being an actor, which I really, really liked. I never thought I would do it professionally, though, obviously, at that point. I always thought I would go in into law or politics and studied really, really hard in year 12 to get into what I thought was the top law school, and I still think it is, obviously, but I'm biased because I'm a graduate from the University of New South Wales. So I didn't think I would ever do it seriously, professionally, um, but I, I just remember loving being in the – well, the first time I got famous was actually when we did Fiddler on the Roof and I fell from the roof, and that's how I oh, got no. kind of known. Yeah, that's how I got known first <laughs> Uh, in a freak accident, I was coming down in a coffin, um, descended from the roof, and there was a technical difficulty, probably because like some idiot year ten boy was do, working the ropes, and um, yeah, and I fell from a height, and but miraculously didn't die, although some people thought I was dead. Um, and I just sprained all my ribs and my wrist, um, and but that well, that was my first taste of becoming famous, actually, because everybody talked about <laughs> it. Everyone just you know. <laughs> Saw me go splat on the stage, and then yeah, and then but I was back. I was back out there the next night with my wrist all in a cast and everything, still singing and dancing. You are a trooper. Now all the musical theatre nerds will be mad at me if I don't ask what you were playing or who you were playing in Fiddler on the Roof. I played from a Sarah Jamila, uh, not not a key role. I will say this to all the young people out there: I. I was cast in lead roles in the plays, but in the musicals I was never the lead role in. We did Grease and I was just in the chorus, guys. I was up the back. But I was giving it my all. And then in Fiddler on the Roof was from a Sarah. And that, that is quite a small role. But I tell you what, I like to think I was a scene stealer even back then. I do not imagine otherwise. So tell me about when you got involved with Australian Theatre for Young People. What do you remember most from doing work with them? After high school, I, I really did, uh, didn't think I was going to go into entertainment in, in any way, shape or form. I didn't have any family connections. And I actually went to Africa um, as a youth ambassador for Australia, which was a program that Rotary International was running at the time. And I had this crazy African adventure, got malaria. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, during my malaria-induced hallucination, uh, had this vision that I was a great actress and that I won an Academy Award. You're a and prophet. And I was in hospital. Yeah, so I was in hospital, like, die, half dying. And then I had this full-on vision and I was like, oh, my God. And I was a huge fan of Oprah and Oprah would say, like, the universe will tell you things and it will come first as a whisper and then it will come as, like, a full-blown, almost like a truck hitting you and this really was, like, a truck hitting me and I'm in the hospital suffering badly with the malaria and then just was like, that's it. As soon as I get out of hospital, I'm going to become an actress and so I left Africa a little bit early and came back to audition for what's called the National Institute of Dramatic Art, NIDA, which um, I, I guess probably, probably has a reputation of being the best, one of the best acting schools in Australia. Yeah, for sure. And they like just flat out like not rejected. <laughs> and I was like, oh. 
but I'd had this vision and then I started telling people, I go, I think I, I need to become an actress. And they're like, no, 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 you're in the top law school. Like, you know, it was so hard to get into that law school. Like, you've got to go and do that. And then I found out about A2IP and you could kind of, they had um, a 19 to 26-year-old age category and you could do classes at night if you're in that that age category. And I was like, oh, hang on, I can go to university all day and then I'll just catch the train, go down to Circular Quay and then go to A2IP um, all night. And, and that's kind of what I did for the first two years of university. So I was, I was like just turned 19 and I started with a very basic kind of acting course there and just loved it so much. And then A2IP did productions and by the end of my first year at A2IP, I was in a production that was a co-production with Sydney Theatre Company, a play written by Nick Enright, who was one of Australia's top playwrights and and putting it on at Sydney Theatre Company and having that amazing experience. So I went from really like zero to to 100 at A2IP that first year and because I loved the first course so much, I was like, oh, well, I want to try musical theatre and I want to try screen acting and, and everything that they had to offer. And I kind of found like because none of the um, – eventually I did also audition for all the main drama schools in Australia and none of them took me like – Everyone was like, no, no way. Years later, NIDA said I was apparently too good, but I don't believe that. Oh, come That's on. why they didn't accept me. Uh, <laughs> I auditioned for them like four times. Uh, they rejected me in four years in a row. But A2OP, I felt, was, oh, well, wow, here's a place where they're so inclusive and they're not trying to cut you down and make you fit some kind of mould, which was what was happening at the drama schools and what's happened to a lot of my friends who went to those drama schools. They were actually encouraging you to be unique and to be an original artist. And so I found those years in um, the early 2000s at A2IP, there was like all these really talented people and um, I was certainly not the most talented, but I definitely had a uniqueness and I, I could write and produce myself as well. So um, that kind of gave me a, a leg up. I watched a Channel 7 interview with you where you spoke about meeting with agents for the first time who just all thought you wanted to be on Home and Away and oh, said you didn't yeah. fit. And they took one look at my body type and were like, um, yeah, we don't think you'll be on Home and Away. So no. Yeah. How did you make space for yourself in, a, in an industry that, you know, wasn't receptive at first. Well, what I had to do, I, so I ended up working at A2AP as their assistant because at the time putting myself through law school and trying to acting school as well that I was paying for, I just didn't have any money. And if I worked at A2AP, I could get the classes for free. So I worked out that little loophole. So as part of that, working for a theatre company, you kind of could see how they put on productions from the start to like opening night. So I was like, hang on, I feel like I could do this. So I was sitting there at my desk. I was very cheeky. I should have been working. I wrote a play in like two days. Far out. I was supposed to be at work and won this playwriting competition. I know I've watched people at A2AP. I can put this on myself. And so I put it on and hired all my friends I'd met through A2AP and uh, we put it on. Um, and then Channel 7 gave me, I think it was $90,000 to put on a professional production. It was really, I mean, it was very successful for, for my first ever play to, yeah. to win this 
competition and then it went on at um, Belvoir and then it got the professional production and I put it out at Parramatta Riverside Theatre because of my my roots out, out there and got to pay everybody all professionally and I just, it was really cool and that was, that was when I was 22 and um, that I remember Paul Fennick, it was in the audience who had the show on SBS Fat Pizza uh, and, and saw some of my characters in, in that play that I put on. And, and I, of course, I cast myself in it as well <laughs> um, to give myself an acting opportunity. And No then, one would forgive you if you hadn't cast yourself in it. I know. I know. Well, you, have, you have to. It's like, well, it's all about content creation when you're a comedian. And if you can create the content, then you, you're more valuable. And also if you're in it as well, that, that becomes more valuable. So, and I, and I remember him there and that's how I got on my first Australian movie on the Fat Pizza movie, which led to me being in the TV show. Oh my God, Kula, I'm so happy to see you and your oversized gang. I didn't love you so much to instantly forgive you. I swear, I'll kill you. So it kind of happened by me devising my own work and my first play was called, I should say, it was called The Westie Monologues that I put on, which is <laughs> all about my stories growing up in Sydney's western suburbs and told through these different characters. And it was just like it was all, you know, kind of my real life and but playing it through characters. It was awesome to have such good success with, with the first first thing that I wrote. Yeah, it must have given you enormous confidence because at that point your career in Australia gets bigger and bigger and then that career moves overseas. So I'm going to fast forward okay, now yeah. through those fast years. Fast forward through about 13 Australian TV shows. I know. Yeah, and also right. fast forwarding through all this hard work, right? All yeah, this yeah, incredible yeah. work you did. Brutal. Uh, which is <laughs> outrageously rude but we don't have a lot of time so I'm fast forwarding all the way to bridesmaids your diary proved very interesting to read you read my you read my journal at first I did not know that it was your diary I thought it was a very sad handwritten book tell me about your fondest memory of being on that set so bridesmaids was my first American movie I was turning 30 I I said if I don't go to America now like it'll probably it won't happen for me and I, I really because when I used to work in the movie cinemas at Castle Hill I was like uh, I mean when I'd be selling the tickets people asked oh what's that movie and you go oh it's an Australian movie and then people would be like oh no mm. they, they kind of more respected the Hollywood movies and which shouldn't be the case by the way because as we know Australians are so talented and so I was like well if I can get in some Hollywood movies then people would actually respect me like my family and stuff. So I was like, okay. Um, so I was like, okay, I went over, I had one suitcase and one doona and I, and I went over, I knew like one, two friends over here. I slept on their couch. I was luckily, I got a Hollywood agent from my show on SBS that I'd written and produced called Bogan Pride and I got a huge Hollywood agent day two living in America. So I was like, okay, great, I've got an agent and they sent me all around town. And I had to go to all these meetings, all the big movies she goes. And then Bridesmaids was casting and they're like, well, we think we're going to give this role to Melissa McCarthy anyways, but you can just come in and be like an alternate option. And I, and I got to, I had to improvise with Kristen Wiig for And I remember it went for like an hour. I was like, they must be liking this because a normal audition can only go for a couple of minutes. And then I literally was improvising with Kristen Wiig for an hour. And then they're like, wow, this is so tough, we, we, like we're going to give it to Melissa, she's their friend and she's more of the right age for the role, but we'd love to add you into Bridesmaids. So, and then they go, well, 
we've got Matt Lucas for this role, but you kind of look a bit like Matt Lucas. Uh, and I weirdly always thought I could play Matt Lucas's sister. I, I don't know. I had his doll from Little Britain. And then they, like, just added me into the movie. So Bridesmaids was my experience on that was only four days of just improvising with Matt, who I adored, and he later became my real-life housemate in Los Angeles, and, and with Kristen Wiig, who is, was just could not have been sweeter. I was the most junior person on the Bridesmaids set, and she could not have been nicer. And um, She took me out to a strip club in Hollywood. That was fun. With all the girls, uh, I that's when I met Roseburn, and uh, who's also in the ATYP, and Melissa, and Maya Rudolph, and I mean, it was it was a really fun set. You could do and say whatever you wanted, and it was literally just all improv. And so it was that was an amazing, amazing first job. And now that I'm a producer of movies over here in America, I try to have all my sets be as friendly and as open as that set was was for me coming on board for my first job in America. Bridesmaids was a small role, but it got you noticed and it got you noticed by so many people, not just fans and audiences, but people in Hollywood. I want to move to Pitch Perfect, of which I know our listeners are mega fans. Yeah. Your role of Fat Amy is beloved around the world. Who are the people who stop you on the street or write you I was about to say letters, write you emails about those movies or tag you on social media. Who do, who do those films touch? The fan base is so interesting. Like the people that write to me on social media, which is really don't ever write to me in real life. I'll, I'll never get a letter or whatever, so don't worry. Don't ever send me an actual letter. But um, it ranges because I have such a young fan base. I'm 41 now, you know, and then, I, you know, like 20s, 30s, 40s, but, e- but even older as well. A lot of the most machoist men are the massivest fans of Pitch Perfect. So, like, <gasps> no way. special forces, yeah, military intelligence, high-profile NFL players like Kobe Bryant famously, uh, who I was friendly with, it just adored Pitch Perfect. Brad Pitt is a massive fan, so that's why I feel like I have license to talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> and outrageously flirt with him whenever I'm around him because uh, him and his kids love watching the movies. Like the obvious, because you feel like it would obviously appeal to younger women, but I mean the fan base for it is massive and it's it's been so awesome to do a trilogy of movies that, that people, they, they are the highest grossing musical comedies of all time. I'm the best singer in Tasmania with teeth. Love it. What's your name? Fat Amy. Um, you call yourself Fat Amy? Yeah, so twig bitches like, you don't do it behind my back. At the peak of your Pitch Perfect fame, there were a series of magazine articles printed here in Australia that painted a really cruel picture of you. How did you deal with that in the aftermath and how did your fans deal with it? Oh, God. So so what happened there, God, it's been so long since I've talked about that, but, yeah, I believe in 2015, Pitch Perfect 2 was number one all around the world. And one media organisation in particular, which I sued for defamation and and won, and um, they were found guilty of malicious defamation um, for writing a whole bunch of articles that were just kind of, um, I guess, I don't know, they just wanted to write something negative and kind of ended up on saying, oh, my whole life is a lie and, yeah, everything about me is made up and things like this. Um, And then so I had to go to court and obviously prove my life story, which was very easy 
because there's obviously thousands of witnesses and, you know, and things to prove everything and where I came from. And it was obviously like a court case against a billion-dollar media conglomerate Mm. um, is not fun because as, you know, what Scarlett Johansson's dealing with uh, right now in her case against Disney, these companies have many, many, many resources and will just try to destroy you as part of a legal strategy. Whereas for me, I was just trying to correct untruths that were out there in the public and I I, I didn't like it because I'm somebody who works my ass off and and works very hard to have a good reputation and these people just just because I had the number one movie around the world decided Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna tear her down now, which is the not nice part about tall poppy syndrome. Yeah, that, that culturally um, is is very still existent in Australia, and so you know, and I, I took them to court and won, and that company suffered very badly in having to not only pay me damages but had to pay my trial costs and their trial costs, which were absolutely you know millions of dollars, and, and so I feel like I I made my point, and they haven't mess with me since so it was an <laughs> exercise in kind of standing up to a bully mm. and I deliberately why I could have sued individuals but instead I sued uh, the, the company that was the major kind of fire starter of, of all of that and uh, to be fairer and because you know you can, can go after I could have gone after the individuals but I thought you know I'll go after this company to prove a point um, and to stop it stop it happening um and it was just I mean I learned so much um about myself the strength you have to have to go up against a billion dollar like media empire is just insane and I was on the witness stand for seven days in that case and it was just like I mean it was it was so awful and it was so unnecessary I was happy to to do it to to stand up to these people and to just say, especially bullying a woman and they um, traditionally a lot of these tabloids have bull- bullied women and I just didn't want to be a victim of that and um, and, it, and it cost me financially. And next time, if it ever happens again, the thing is it's very hard to prove jobs that you didn't get because of those negative articles. Uh, but next time I'll do a better job in that because the original um, judgment where I was awarded $5 million in damages was very accurate to what to what I lost at the time and I didn't end up getting that much but nobody wants to be involved in a court case it's not fun um but but I did learn you know learn so much about myself and, and my strength having to stand up to those people that were that were very toxic towards me you went to New South Wales law school girl why were they messing with you honestly <laughs> well that's their mistake uh <laughs> Because, yeah, do they not know, you know, you know, I think you have to get like 99 out of 100 to, to get into that law school. Um, so, yeah, they maybe should have researched me a little bit more. And no, obviously the case, it was a very clear case of malicious defamation and, and we proved that very easily to the jury. Lots of people have been following on Instagram as you've posted about your year of health journey. Um, oh, yeah. I'm one of them. Yeah, it's caught a lot of people's attention, I think. And people yeah. are obsessed with weight loss a bit. Obsessed. Like, yeah. Completely yeah. obsessed. And, you know, not necessarily for good reasons, I think. But you look happy. There is so much happiness that radiates oh, out of your photos. Thanks. So yeah. how, do you, how do you look back on the changes you've made 
in your life and people's response to it? I mean, the thing is, I think I've always, I've always been a pretty happy person and I'm somebody who's like really big in like, I mean, you guys can, I, you know, I'm famous for playing a character called Fat Amy. So like in terms of body positivity, I think people are beautiful at all different sizes and I would feel just as confident rocking like my size 16 dress as I do now, my size, I'm about size 8 now. I felt just as confident. But to me, what the year of health was, was just being a healthier version. So even though like I loved, I love being bigger and I never stopped me from anything or achieving anything in my life. Uh, as I was getting older and I'm um, starting to deal with fertility stuff and um, and just just learning more about health, I was like, oh, hang on. Some of the things I've been doing, which and basically I'm referring to like emotional eating, so eating foods that I really didn't need and really weren't good for me and using that as a tool to kind of numb emotions, I wanted to really work on that as a, as a human. And so that was, that was the journey. So it wasn't really about losing a set amount of weight, although I did like put a goal originally of 70 five kilos so I could have something tangible to work towards but it's really it's not about a number or a dress size or anything like that it was just about being the healthiest version of me and I dedicated all of 2020 to doing that and I'm I'm proud of myself and why I like I mean I shamelessly probably post too many photos of myself on Instagram now um but I'm like oh because for the first time in my life I've lost lost weight and haven't yo-yoed back and and just put it back on, which is what has happened to me in the past because I did kind of this holistic approach of dealing with the emotional and mental health reasons of why I was was doing that to myself and doing patterns of behaviour that weren't the healthiest. So then I've I've learned kind of how to change change my life for the better through that. I think the body positivity sort of movement has so much good in it there's so much positivity there genuinely in us finding ways to celebrate women no matter what and not defining them by their size. But at the same time, when we're not defining women by their size, that means we have to celebrate someone when they're happy, regardless of what yeah, that looks like. Yeah, exactly. We can all see from your social media that's the case. Oh, they, <laughs> sorry, sorry if I annoy some people. Um, but with the, you're like, oh, I feel good. I feel really good within myself and yeah, like to like to celebrate the the journey, and I also what why I d- did it publicly is for accountability as well. Because mm. I was like, well, it's 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 all good and well just having a little experiment, and if you don't tell people about it, you could just easily fail. Whereas if I tell the whole world on social media, then that's pretty good uh, motivation. Yeah, pretty good motivation when you're just sitting on the couch all day and go, you know what, I should get up and go for a walk today. Rebel, you've come a long way since you were a teenager trying out acting classes with Australian Theatre for Young People. Building on your previous generosity, I know you're donating, how do I say this casually? I know you're donating a million dollars to help support the organisation to find a new home. Tell us about that. So, yeah, like the Australian Theatre for Young People, I really can't talk highly enough of them and the work that they do, their outreach programs throughout Australia, like with Indigenous communities and um, kids from lower socioeconomic areas. Like, And for me, like that company just changed the direction of my life. They supported me when traditional acting schools and stuff didn't and gave me a home and gave me a voice 
And that's where I started. So for me, even though not everyone out there might want to be an actor or go into the entertainment business, but so many young people can benefit from like realizing they have a voice and, and learning how to use their voice and express themselves. Initially, it all started where I, I got a scholarship from Nicole Kidman uh, when I was at A2IP and I got to go to New York and have a great time and go to comedy school over there. And so it first started giving back to A2IP when I just wanted to repay them the money for the scholarship, for the original scholarship I won when I was 23. So I paid them back that money. And then and then I was like, oh, you know, it would be good to have my own scholarship. And so I've had that going for the past five years, the Rebel Wilson Theatre Makers Scholarship. I knew they were in need, their A2IP was in need of a new home. I mean, obviously with the pandemic and stuff, you know, it's not like arts funding is just everywhere and I can just go dip into buckets and, and grab stuff. Like it's really hard and A2IP is a not-for-profit charitable organisation and so I like to give back and have my certain charities that I support and A2IP I was just like, wow, they okay, they need a new home on the wharf and that's my birthplace of my acting career. And so I thought, well, you know what, I'll just give a big, massive donation to, to help them build this amazing new theatre there, which I think they might be calling the Rebel Theatre. I think, I so. think they are. Yeah, and uh, which is pretty awesome. I can't, I can't wait to visit it when I get back, hopefully for Christmas, and visit it and, and see the building of it because it's just it will be a place, an inclusive place for all these young people to learn and express themselves and it's, it's, it's really, really exciting for me to, to give back in that way. Rebel, you're right that the pandemic has hit the arts hard here in Australia. There hasn't been the same support for the arts that there has been for other industries. And I am sure there are a whole bunch of young people listening to this right now who feel like probably law would be a more more sensible direction for them to take and giving more of them an opportunity to follow what they really want to do is so exciting and so meaningful. Yeah. And sounds kind of wanky, but you're genuinely going to be changing some lives. I don't know. I feel so lucky. Like even though I've worked my ass off to get where I am, I also feel lucky and I'm, and I'm so, you know, grateful for all the people that have helped me and all the people that were involved in A2IP and the friends that I met there. It's just so, such a special time in my life. And so to try to give that kind of safe, creative environment to other young Australians, I think is just, just really good. And so I can't wait to see like the productions there and yeah, one of the which I've been, uh, been helping with for the new season. And it's going to be so cool. Rebel Wilson, thank you so much for being on the weekend briefing. No worries, guys. That's all we've got time for with Rebel Wilson. It was genuinely a delight having that conversation with her. Please don't go away. Tate McGregor is in next with The Weekend List. Tate McGregor. That was one hell of a conversation with Rebel Wilson. I hope you enjoyed it. I also want to know what else you are enjoying in lockdown. I, number one, loved the conversation. And number two, want to recommend um, a movie on Netflix that I think is pretty timely today. Uh, On the date that we're publishing this episode, it is the 20th anniversary of the September 11 attacks. And I think it's worthwhile, you know, 
Looking back and remembering that, um, there's a movie on Netflix called Worth. It stars Michael Keaton, Stanley Tucci, Amy Ryan, and is about the real-life events of the insurers who had to look after the families after the 9-11 attacks. So essentially they're lawyers who have to face the families and put a price on the lives of the people who were lost. And it's hectic. You get invested into individual stories throughout those attacks and then also just the intensity of what these lawyers would have had to go through, which was unprecedented at the time. So, yeah, Worth on Netflix is my recommendation this week. My wife died that day and everything about this formula offends me. Sorry to hear that. But we can't bend the rules for every case. Why not? Congress gives you broad discretion, but when 7,000 citizens ask you not to be treated like some numbers on a spreadsheet, you act like that law came down from Sinai. What about you, Jam? What are you recommending? I'm going to be completely shameless and plug my new book. Is that allowed? Is that allowed? No, they can't stop us now. If you're hearing this, they didn't stop me, everyone. So Work, Love, Body is a new book by Future Women, which is where I'm at work when I'm not on the weekend briefing. I have edited this book. It is all about the experiences of Australian women throughout the pandemic and how the pandemic is going to change women's working lives, their relationships and their health moving forward. For the book, we have talked to hundreds of women whose real stories we've shared in this book, women who have watched their mothers die on Zoom from a million miles away on the other side of the world, women who were nurses during the pandemic and caught COVID and sat in hotel rooms on their own wondering if they were going to die through to women who lost their jobs at supermarkets and ended up at a food bank for the first time in their lives, something they never thought was possible. This shares stories and experiences, absolutely, but more importantly, this book looks to the future and says, as we emerge from this pandemic, how are we going to build a more gender equal world? Maybe you'll have a look around the interwebs and grab a copy this week. It's called Work, Love, Body. That's it for the weekend briefing. Thank you for lending us your ears today. If you'd like to hear more, then you can find us on the listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. If you subscribe, then you will never have to miss an episode. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. It helps other people to find the briefing and the weekend briefing. We will be back bright and early next Monday morning and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.